Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Well, hello. How's everybody doing? If, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brenton. I'm the worship pastor here at, uh, at Orchards, and uh, I'm going to be the one that's privileged today to talk to you through God's Word this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be talking through, um, continuing on in our series through Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 16, starting at verse 19. And uh, before we get started, though, would you join me in a word of prayer? All right. Father, I pray today that the words I speak will not be my own, that they will be void of all of me and filled with all of you. Let your words speak to us and show us your glory so that we may praise your name in word and deed and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right. As we dive into our passage today, it's important to note that even though this is out of Luke's gospel, um, the words that we're going to be reading are the words of Jesus. And that fact makes the story about rich man and the Lazarus, which is the story we're going to be talking about, it's kind of hard to place. Because is it a parable or is it a story? Now, I always assumed it was a parable because it reads very much like a parable. You know, when you read parables, someone always represents someone else. And so was, as, we read this, as we read this story, um, we almost automatically read it and go, okay, that person represents God, and, and that person represents me, and, and you know what I mean? That's, that's kind of what you do. But again, this is Jesus talking, so this could be a real story, because of all people, Jesus would know. Now, I tell you that because I want to tell you another story about my oldest son, and he's nine, and he's an awesome kid, super inquisitive, and he asks a bunch of questions, and that's great. We have good conversations about God or football or Star Wars, and and it's really, really good conversation. But sometimes it trips him up. Like, for instance, I'll ask him to take out the uh, the trash, and I'll say, hey, bud, would you mind taking out the garbage for me? But before you do, just make sure you put on some shoes. And he'd go, I have to to put on shoes? Do I need socks? Can I wear sandals? Can I wear my sister's shoes? What, what if I can't find my shoes? Do I not have to take out the trash now? Kind of thing. And I'm like, bro, your sandals are fine. Just put something on and take out the trash. The point was to have the trash taken out, not to go into a 10-minute discussion about the proper attire to wear for taking out the trash, right? And we've all done this. But what's funny is we do it with the Bible sometimes too. And in this story that we're going to walk through together, We could get bogged down on whether or not it's a true depiction of history or if it's just simply a parable. Or we could do a word study on Abraham's bosom or paradise or Hades. Or we could try to unpack what this means eschatologically or the study of the end times or how other verses talk about the last days and what that looks like and rapture, you know, post-trib, pre-trib, all of those things. And I'm not saying any of those are bad. I think those are great topics and one day we might go through all those. But I'm not going to talk about it today. Because I don't want to focus on the shoes of this passage. Does that make sense? And after studying this passage, I believe the overall point is for us not to debate the end times, 
but rather understand the purpose of this life so that we can live with God in the next. All of those other things are secondary to the life and truth of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. So let's do that. Let's, let's go to Luke 16. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's on the, our trusted Sky Bible. Um, you also should have this passage in your notes, okay? So here we go, verse 19. <clears throat> there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this passage starts out by introducing two characters. And the first is the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And some translations say that this man habitually dressed like this. So he looked good and he loved to show off his wealth. And not only did he look good, he lived good too. The Bible says he feasted sumptuously every day. And when I first read this, I thought it referred to him eating these epic meals every day. Like he had his own personal Gordon Ramsay, just cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that sort of thing. But if we look at other translations, the translators paint an even broader picture of this man's living habits. The NIV, for instance, says he lived in luxury every single day. Another translation says enjoying himself in splendor every day. That sounds pretty nice, right? Now, I'm nowhere near this kind of wealthy, uh, but the closest thing I could even compare as I'm kind of thinking through this, this message is when my wife and I went on a cruise for our honeymoon. We went on a week-long cruise that took off from Key West, Florida, and then we went to the Grand Cayman Islands, and then we went to Jamaica, and then we came back, and it was the greatest thing ever. It was so cool. If you guys have been on a cruise, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been on a cruise, let me paint you the picture, okay? Picture this. Restaurants are open 24-7. Ice cream machines are placed strategically around the ship so that almost right when you finish your chocolate vanilla swirl cone, it's time for another refill. So you just walk over. <laughs> There's room service every single morning, I think all day long. You just have to fill out this little checkmark sheet put it on your door, and then they knock on it, and you got your coffee, your muffin. It's, it's, oh, it's beautiful. Our bedroom had a balcony, 
And one morning we sat out there and I remember looking out on the water as the sunbeams danced along the waves and seeing flying fish just scamper across the surface. We watched shows, productions. We went on excursions. I went zip lining in the jungles of Jamaica. And the last thing I'll tell you about, because I don't want to make the sermon about how good cruises are. It's not an infomercial. The last thing I'll tell you about is they had a gym near the top of the, the ship. And I'll never forget the feeling of running on a treadmill with a 270 degree view of the ocean. It was just me and creation. It was so great. It was so cool. So when I think about living, excuse me, at the height of luxury, feasting sumptuously every day, this is what I think of. And, and this is the picture that I think Jesus wants us to have of this guy. A man whose life was a fairy tale. Jesus wants to draw us into this rich man's lifestyle and marvel. All right, now enter character number two, Lazarus. He lived a life that was almost completely opposite of the rich guy's life. While Richie Rich lived in a home most likely with servants, Lazarus was laying down outside by his gate. While Richie Rich wore purple and fine linen, the Bible says Lazarus was clothed in sores and dirt. While Richie Rich ate all the food he wanted, Lazarus most likely had to beg for scraps. In fact, the Bible says he longed to be fed with what fell off the rich man's table. Let me ask you, who eats off of the food that falls on the floor? Who eats that? The dogs. That's right. So Lazarus was socially equal with the beasts, barely even considered a man at this point. And just in case you still don't get that picture of how stark contrast these two lives were, Jesus, the master storyteller, says that the dogs would come by and lick his sores, which is just disgusting, right? That's the point. Jesus wants us uh, to see this rich man's life and think, man, that's the life. I want to be that guy one day. And that way, when you see the life of Lazarus, you almost naturally go, ugh, I hope I never end up like that guy. Ugh. As we're to marvel at the rich man's life, we're supposed to look at Lazarus's life and take pity on him. Now, there's something I, I wanna, want you to see that might have passed you right by as we read it earlier. You see, Lazarus did have one thing going for him that the rich man did not. And it was a name. Jesus gives this poor beggar a name. Kind of ironic that this rich man has all the wealth in the world, yet he couldn't afford to, to buy a name with Jesus. And that's because, you see, this life is not about wealth. If we go back just a few verses in Luke 16, Pastor James taught us this a few weeks ago, money is a terrible God. Luke 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in this story, Richie Rich doesn't just love money. It's his God. His life revolves around the accumulation and admiration of wealth. And because of that, he has no room for God. I mean, why would he? He has everything he's ever wanted. Money, food, fame, power, women, 
He's got servants. He's got a big house. I mean, for all I know, he could have a couple of jet skis in the garage. This man made his own path, and he had no need for God. Now, the truth is, God was actually the one providing for him and blessing him with just this incredible wealth. But this man kept thinking he was rich because he was awesome, rather than he was blessed by God. And God was just being so gracious and generous to him. Now, I want to ask you something. Feel free to answer or not answer. But is having money a sin? No. Okay, good job. Question number two. Is having a lot of money a sin? No. Good job. Of course not. Jesus isn't saying you can't have a lot of money. Nor that you shouldn't do the best that you can at your job so that you earn a decent living or even a crazy amount of living. Having money is not the problem. The problem is that this rich man's life had everything invested in this life. His heart, his worship, his devotion, his focus was on, how did Pastor James put it? Getting what you can, canning what you get, and sitting on the can. I like that too. I I still laugh at that. To this person, Jesus says, you are a fool. And to have Jesus call you a fool is not a good thing. In the parable of the aptly named rich fool, Jesus says, Luke 12, verse 20, this is the NIV. Jesus says, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? In other words, what good did all that canning get you? What good is it in the next life? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, we can stop here and make this sermon about living this life for God and not worshiping money, but honoring God with what we have and blessing others and being generous and being good stewards. But Jesus already addressed that several times over. That was the lesson of the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. Lesson of the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16. We'll see the influence of money and its power and corruption in the life of Judas Iscariot. And in a few chapters, we'll see the power of God in the life of wealthy Zacchaeus, who chose Jesus instead of his bank account, and his life was radically turned upside down for the glory of God. But this story, our story, it doesn't end here. That's because Jesus wants us to learn a different lesson. So let's read verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, notice, they both die. Lazarus, well, he was, he was on borrowed time anyway, right? I mean, he was barely eating, if you even call it that. So it makes sense. But so did the rich man. And this is the only point in the story where they're both equal. They both have equal outcomes. But notice how even in death, on earth at least, these two men are still treated differently. Lazarus, it just says he dies. And though it was custom to bury the dead in Jewish tradition, just as in life, Lazarus was a nobody. So they probably just dug a hole and threw him in it. Just like, whatever. But the rich man, when he dies, he receives a proper burial. Maybe even a tomb. So he could be better than the commoners, even in death. But you see, after death is when the story gets interesting. You see, Lazarus dies, and the Bible says he goes to paradise. And not just walks there or takes a cab. 
He's carried by the angels, which is not a bad way to go, if you ask me. And the rich man, though he had this beautiful funeral on earth, Jesus just kind of places him in Hades or the, the realm of the dead or, for our purposes, not paradise. And I don't want you to miss the change in tone because Jesus is very intentional when he tells it like this. Verse 23, the rich man in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. All right, so what's going on here? As I said, Jesus flips this story upside down. Poor becomes rich, rich becomes poor. The proud and luxury addicted becomes the tormented and the poor and humble become glorified. Do you guys see that? I think the point here is so that we change our perspectives, change our priorities. What we thought earlier, admiring Richie Rich's life and thinking those things would bring us life and joy, they actually have the power and potential to pull us away from God entirely. Where it started with Richie Rich having all the wealth and pleasure and enjoying every minute on earth and death, he's in torment. He's in anguish, being tortured by this consuming fire, and he's now experiencing an endless supply of the opposite of his life on earth. And where is Lazarus this whole time? He's doing too well to even respond. In fact, he's doing so well that he's no longer a main character in the story. Abraham says he's now being comforted. I don't know about you, but after having a life that he had, seeing the picture of dogs licking his sores, naked, begging, hungry, cold, and miserable, he could probably use some comfort. And now he's in paradise, experiencing the opposite of his earthly life as well. And Richie Rich looks up and sees Abraham. I don't know how he recognizes him, maybe from his Instagram photos or something. And he calls out, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, side note here, why is he talking to Abraham? Did that strike anybody else as weird? Okay, you and me. Everybody else is, is way more scholarly than, than us. That's okay. Um, why doesn't Richie Rich talk to Lazarus or Jesus or the Father? Let's go a, a few chapters left and read Luke 13. This is Luke 13, 24 to 30. It says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So I think Jesus is showing us a fulfillment of scripture. Jesus is just drawing another parallel. Richie Rich knocked on the door to the party, but was cast away from God's presence. And he's seeing all those people heading to the great banquet with God, the most important party that he'll never get an invite to. And he's in anguish. And one of the people he sees is Abraham. And so that's why he cries out. But notice here that Richie Rich doesn't ask to be rescued. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's almost like he instinctively knows he can't leave. He's not asking for someone to help him out of the situation. He's asking for relief, for for a glimmer of reprieve from his torment. He's asking for just a drop of water from the tip of a finger. Now, we can take this idea and think to the point that it's getting us to see just how bad Hades really is, you know, how hot it is and how miserable and how tormenting. We can go that route and just go, well, that's what that means. And that makes me think of the time my family and I drove to go see my brother-in-law. He lives in Vegas, and it was in the middle of July, and it was like 125 degrees, and there was no wind, there were no clouds, it was just heat, and we stepped out of the car into the oven that is the Nevada sun, just this oppressive heat that just saps all your energy. You walk out, and you're just sweating and just like, oh, I'm tired. This is horrible. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, Now now picture that heat and multiply that by 10,000. And then we can start to see how in that situation, even a drop of cool water would feel super refreshing. But uh, honestly, that's not how I take this passage. I think that's part of it for sure. But honestly, I think this rich man is simply asking for the smallest amount of help possible. He's literally asking for the least that anyone could do for him. You guys familiar with that expression? You know, the least anybody could do. Like you hold open the door for somebody and they go, oh, thank you so much. Oh, that's the least I could do, right? I think Rich is realizing that he wasted his entire life and is now reaping what he sowed. So maybe just maybe they'll show him one last favor and send someone over just to give him a drop of water. Maybe if he asked for the smallest favor possible, then he'd have a pretty good chance of getting it. Because, you know, how hard is it for someone who has it all to just dip his finger in water and go? It would be like if we asked Elon Musk to spare a penny. You know, it's nothing. Nothing. But this request actually shows Richie Rich's true character. It shows why he ended up where he did. He looks into paradise at the banquet about to start and asks for someone to serve him. And not just someone, Lazarus. The guy who we read earlier had sores as clothes, was shivering in the cold, starving to death, who lived at the rich man's gate. But do you think Rich ever stopped to help him out? Did Rich ever dip his finger into his vast wealth for the good of others? Was he a good steward of his fortune? No. Matthew 25, verse 40 says this, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, now that the tables have turned, he's changed his tune. In life, he wanted pleasure. 
But when that God of pleasure turned sour and the fruit that it produced was death, he now wants the God of mercy. And we can easily look at Richie Rich and condemn him and judge him because I did the exact same thing. When I read this story and I get to this part, I'm like, yes, you justice, right? You're getting what you deserve, buddy. But as my mom used to say, when you point a finger at somebody, you always have a few pointing back at you. So that's now why I point like this. It's a little joke, sorry. The truth is, all too often, I think I'm living righteously when I'm really living more religiously. I'm too caught up in my own world, living according to how others will see me rather than resting in just my true identity in Christ. I'm too busy to pray for other people when they come to my mind or to be generous to other people when God has blessed me beyond what I even deserve. Here's when I get angry at the person who drives at night with their brights on. And I'm like, what are you doing? Who does it? And I look down and I'm like, oh, mine, mine were on. Sorry. <laughs> right? At that point, that's when I want mercy. I wanted justice two seconds ago. When my wife and I are speaking less than gentle to one another, I want her to apologize to me rather than just humbling myself and loving my wife for the glory of God. You see, Richie Rich was a man of great wealth, but he was consumed by his false gods, the gods of money, public approval, social status, Instagram followers, all the time denying the real God. Now notice something. Look at verse 25. What does Abraham call him? It's okay. What does he say? Child. Some translations say son. Richie Rich was a Jew. He knew who Abraham was. He was taught the law. He knew about God and all the marvelous works that, that God had done for Israel. On the outside, he looked very righteous. But in his heart, not so much. I just want to stop and ask you, and when I say you, remember, I have those three fingers pointing back at me. Are you living religiously or relationally with Jesus? Are you living this life with Jesus as God or with a bunch of false gods and Jesus just is among one of the ones that you have up on the altar? Or maybe Jesus isn't even on the altar, but he needs to be. And as we keep reading, you're going to see why. Verse 25. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, at first glance, I think it's really easy to misinterpret this scripture because it seems like it says, well, you know, Richie Rich had good things in life. And so now in afterlife, he's getting bad things. And likewise, Lazarus had bad things in life and now he's getting good things, right? But that doesn't fit with the rest of scripture. It sounds like some sort of reverse prosperity gospel. And we can read that God is good and he wants good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what does Abraham or Luke or Jesus, what does he mean here? To me, it sounds very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, and he says to not be like the hypocrites. Matthew 6, 5 says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, I know this is talking about praying, but I think the heart is still the same. 
People are doing things for the glory and the praise of man rather than to glorify and praise God. So you have a guy like Richie Rich here who received these amazing blessings in life, but for what? He lived for the praise of man and himself and not for God. And since that was what his heart desired, God being a God of love gave it to him. So he already received his reward. And I think Lazarus being the polar opposite in this story, though he was poor, he was actually poor in spirit. He did not live for man, but for God. Now that might seem easy to to say because, well, he had nothing to distract him, right? He was broke as a joke, and so all he had was his faith. So it's almost a no-brainer. Like, of course he loved Jesus. What else was he going to do? Well, first off, we don't know how he became poor. You don't get this guy's whole life story. But from the context, it seems that Lazarus was a poor man who was repentant and faithful. Now, here's something interesting. Lazarus's name means God has helped. Now, I I read this, and I was kind of (laughs) like, okay. Because it doesn't seem like God helped him very much. In my own feeble way of, of understanding, I'm like, God, if you really wanted to help him, maybe take off some of those sores on his body. Maybe give him a good meal. Give, give, him, give him some pants, for goodness sakes. But I think the reason his name is Lazarus is even cooler than that. I think his being poor was actually the help from God. I know as some of you guys out here, sometimes you need to be knocked down and stripped of everything you have until you realize what really matters. Because here's the truth. It's hard to see God when you have too many things blocking your view. And sometimes we're so stubborn and hard-hearted that out of his grace and mercy, God blesses you by removing those boundaries and brings you to a point where all you can say is, God, I, I have nothing left. Here I am. All I have is my faith, and it's yours. And that is a beautiful and scary place to be. And some of you right now are in the midst of some deep, deep hurt and brokenness. I don't know all of your circumstances, but chances are there's a handful of people that are listening to my voice that have been thinking for some time now, God, where are you? Can I just say he's right there with you? He's working. He's faithful. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through and why you're going through it, but you're not alone. God has a plan and a purpose. And though we may not be able to see it, we know that God is trustworthy. And we know from scripture that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. Amen? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us who are in paradise and you who are in torment, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you like he was asking Lazarus to do, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. See, Abraham just continues to clarify how permanent the situation really is. And Abraham responds like, hey man, I I don't think you understand how this works. Even if we wanted to help you, we can't. There's like this giant gulf in the way. It's fixed. It's not, it's not getting smaller or narrower or closer or anything like that. Some translations say it's actually set in place. 
It is what it is, and it will never change. It's permanent. Now, at this point, some of us might be getting a little nervous. I say us because I'm getting kind of nervous too because I'm, I'm starting to see some of the parallels between my life and Rich's life. And I'm like, oh, no. Uh, it can get really bad. All right, God, I'm, I'm following with you, Jesus. Don't stop the story now. You know, how, how do I need to live so I don't spend the rest of my life in Hades? So let's keep reading. Verse 27. And he said, this is Rich speaking, then I beg you, Father, to send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. See, now the light bulbs are starting to turn on for him. And at this point, he's starting to grasp the reality and the permanence of his residence in Hades. And he looks back on the life that he's lived and the people he's influenced and taught and rubbed shoulders with, and he sees the error of that type of lifestyle. And he thinks, well, if I can't save myself, maybe I can get a message to my family and they can be saved. Which ironically, he's asking for yet another favor. If he can't have a drop of water to bring relief to his body, maybe he can have a drop of water to bring relief to his soul. But again, what does Abraham reply with? No. Sorry, Rich. You get no favor. You get no relief. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. But have you ever wondered if the Bible is actually enough? I have. But from this passage, Jesus seems to think it is. That's what he's saying here. Moses and the prophets is a reference to scripture. Jesus is saying, look, the Bible is God's word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, and it brings wisdom and guidance. And more importantly, it brings us to our knees in repentance and worship of our amazing God. It is sufficient. And not just like sufficient, like, oh, it's good enough. Jesus is saying is that all you need to know about God and how to worship him is found in scripture. It is sufficient to know your God and steer you away from idolatry and living for the pleasure of this life and point you towards the God of peace and joy, toward a God who loves you and who has prepared a way for you in Christ. But as you can see, this was a lesson that Rich didn't learn with Wesley and Awanas as a kid, because how does he reply here? Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Have you, have you guys ever read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Story? And if you're like me and you didn't read it, there's movies about it. So have you guys seen the movies? <laughs> we won't go into a discussion of whether movies or, or books are better. We're not going to do that. Different time. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character in that story. And he's a man whose life resembles very much Richie Rich's life. Right? He has all the money in the world. But in his old age, he's just this super old and grouchy man, stingy with his money. I mean, he doesn't even pay Mickey Mouse a decent salary. Am I right? You guys will get that in Christmas time. It's okay. But later on in that story, he's visited by some dead guys, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And they take him through this inventory of his life, and he sees that his life will amount to nothing, that all his wealth is meaningless if it's not shaped by love and grace. 
and charity. And that's what Richie Rich is asking here. He wants Lazarus to be the ghost of Christmas future for his five Ebenezer Scrooge brothers. And to be fair, that's a pretty compelling argument, right? But in truth, what is he actually saying? He's saying, no, Abraham, the the Bible's not enough. He needs more. I I know you can read about God's hand in creation or his rescue of Israel from Egypt or his hand throughout the judges or the preservation of the line of David or his faithfulness in Israel coming out of Babylon and hundreds of stories in between. I know they can read that, but it's not enough. They need something else. They need more. And so he thinks, I know. Send Lazarus back to my family. They'll probably recognize him as that beggar that we, we passed by on all our parties and whatever. And they'll, they'll recognize him and then it'll click. And then they'll realize their sin and they'll repent and they'll turn to God. And we kind of chuckle like this because we're like, dude, really? But can I just tell you, I'm, I'm very much like Richie Rich here. God, show up in a huge way and make me see you better. I can't tell you how many, t- how many metaphorical fleeces I've laid down waiting for morning dew to be on it. I forget that the biggest sign I could ever ask for was given in Jesus coming down on earth, being crucified on a cross, and being raised three days later. I mean, what better sign could I ask for? Oh, but then God gives me another one. In his infinite mercy, God provides a book that I can now reference and ponder and search and pray over as many times as I need to. How many of us overlook the miracle that is the Bible and forget that when we need God to talk to us, we just open it up and let God speak? All right, let's, let's wrap this up. Let's, let's finish with this last verse. And I think here it's kind of funny. I think Jesus is being a, a little cheeky here. That's my translation. Uh, Verse 31, Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I hope that after saying this, Jesus kind of looks up and goes, (laughs) right? Because if anyone knows what it's like to come back from the dead and not have people still believe your message, it would be Jesus, right? The unfortunate reality of the human condition is that we're all drawn to sin. Adam and Eve were in the literal presence of God in the Garden of Eden, but they couldn't resist taking a bite from the restricted produce section. Moses had some of the greatest encounters with God ever recorded, but his pride kept him from entering the promised land. King David was blessed and and used by God to unite the entire nation of Israel and lead them in prosperity, but one rooftop encounter took him down. I can even look at my own repeated pull to sin despite the overwhelming favor and grace of God. What Jesus is saying is up on your screen. If you don't want to see something, you won't see it. Truth is, we have more than enough data to know God. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, all of mankind is without excuse. Truth be told, we can look at the mountains the skies, the rivers, our own kids, even our own biology, and worship God. But if we won't listen to the signs that he's already given us, what good will new ones do? In reality, we don't need more information. We need to be woken up by his grace and have our eyes opened 
to the majesty of God. Okay, so where does that leave us? What do we do now? Well, it's really simple. First, if you're not a believer of Jesus, what are you waiting for? It's pretty clear here and in other passages that there are only two places you go after you die. Both are very different and both are very permanent. Lazarus was repentant and humbled before God. Richie Rich went another route. What I do know is that God loves you so much that he did everything necessary for you to live in paradise. And when Jesus died on the cross, what did he cry out? It's one of my favorite things to say. It is finished. It is finished. And in his word, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. Stop looking for more signs and listen to the ones that were already given. We know that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. This is a historical fact. It's been proven by historians, archaeologists, scientists, and other people way smarter than me. We know that God's word is reliable and trustworthy. Again, no book on the face of the earth has undergone more scrutiny than the Bible because the Bible claims to be from God. And so if it is from God, it should be able to withstand scrutiny. And it does. A lot. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift from God, not of works, so that no man may boast. What that means is that Lazarus wasn't in paradise going, guys, do you see how humble I got? Right? I mean, look what I did. High fives, right? No, he's doing what I know I'm going to be doing. Kneeling at the foot of Christ and just worshiping God. Saying, God, thank you for loving me and giving me your grace when I didn't deserve it. Thank you for your mercy. And so if you haven't already, give your life to Jesus. Turn it over to him. Heed the warnings of scripture. Of living a life any other way outside of a life found in him. And just trust him. Now, for those of you who are Christians, can I ask you, how is your walk? You've been given an incredible amount of wealth in Christ. You have one of the greatest gifts ever given to mankind, the gift of grace. How are you doing sharing that with your family, with your coworkers? Here's one, yourself. You may not have tons of money, but you do have other resources and ways of blessing other people for the good of the kingdom. How are you doing in that? Does your life resemble humility and love and grace like Jesus has done? Or does your life resemble like mine does sometimes, Mr. Scrooge? Are you growing and maturing in your faith? Are you serving in a ministry here at OCC? Are you giving? And really... All of this just boils down to one question. Do you trust Jesus to take care of and guide and steer and control all that you have more than you do yourself? I hope and pray that we all, myself included, remember three fingers pointing right back at me, I pray that we'll all be transformed to the image of Christ. All right, let's pray. Hmm.
Father God, you are so good. Your gospel is amazing. It is good news to all of us. God, I pray that people who don't know you right now, that your spirit would move in them, that they would, they would see that the life they're living, pursuing anything else other than you, is fruitless. It may bring temporary pleasure, but it will bring eternal pain. God, we, I pray that you would move in their hearts, that they would see that you are worth it, that you are trustworthy. And God, I pray for, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. As the psalmist says, God, search our hearts. Find any grievous way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. God, magnify yourself in our lives. Let you increase so that we can decrease for our good and your glory. And God, I pray as I, as I touched upon earlier, there are some really, really tough situations in the room right now. A lot of heartache and a lot of brokenness, a lot of fear and anxiety, and that's not where you want us to live. God, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of joy and peace. God, you are the faithful God. You are faithful when we give our lives to you as unbelievers, and you are faithful to save us and rescue us. God, you are faithful to move in the lives of your people and change them to be mirrors of who you are. And God, you are faithful to work through any situation, even as bad as, as it may be, you are faithful enough to use that for good. God, we trust you as the faithful God. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' holy, holy, holy name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.